Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. Uh, My name is Ryan, if you don't know me, and I'm the pastor here. And we're in a series called For the Sake of the World. Uh, We're kind of winding down. And I had a few different thoughts of what we possibly could talk about today. Uh, But then I decided to put a poll on Slack and my friend John David, who many of you know, said, do the sermon that scares you the most. Um, So today we're going to go through the book of Enoch and we're going to explore how the Nephilim are actually uh, gray aliens that are coming back to uh, impregnate the women uh, and take over the world again. Wouldn't that be great though? It's all, you look it up on YouTube, okay? (laughs) On Mondays we watch Ancient Aliens and this is kind of the, the main content of it. No, what, so what we're going to be talking about today is, um, is identity. You know, this, this whole series, we've been thinking more about um, what is it that we are to do. Like, what, what comes on the other side of knowing God, of being known by him? How do we move through the world? But I think it's so important that we're always able to kind of come back around to remind ourselves who we are. Because if we forget who we really are, Um, when it comes to what we feel called to do or what we feel the burden to do, we can often find our identity in that, um, in our actions, in how we show up, in what we offer and how we interpret things. And that's, I think, a lot of times where the chaos comes um, in the Christian life is when we become unmoored or we forget who we really are um, and we start attaching that to these transient Um, and transparent things. So today, we're going to be really focusing in on identity. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to look at uh, our first scripture for today. So Heavenly Father, um, we testify to the truth that you are here, and that you're with us, and that you are for us, um, that you turn curses into blessings. And Lord, I love that you continually call us home. You call us to sit at your table, uh, to sup with you, to be reminded of who we really are in the light of your love. Lord, none of us have already laid grasp to the profundity of who we are in you, but that becomes the pursuit of our life, that more and more day by day as we gather, um, as we spend time with you in stillness and silence, as we worship, as we pour over your scripture, as we really examine the lies that we receive from the culture around us, that we're always looking to in invest ourselves in that, our identity in Christ, to make that the truest thing about us so that we can be unwavering and unmoved, and in doing so, to be deeply compassionate people. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, So we're going to begin today by looking at uh, a portion of Matthew chapter 3. This should be familiar to many of you that know Jesus' story. Because if we want to know what it means to be truly human, we have to begin by looking at Jesus. It's it's very obvious, um, but it bears repeating often. And so what we're seeing here, kind of the first time uh, uh, the adult Jesus comes on the scene according to Matthew, 
and uh, we see his cousin, John the Baptist, is out in the desert. He's baptizing people for repentance, and then Jesus comes to be baptized by John. Like Jesus, at this point, he's done nothing. He has said nothing. He hasn't preached any sermons. He hasn't healed anybody or cast out any demons. He's just a guy. He's John's cousin. So that's what we're jumping in with today. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 3, uh, beginning in the 13th verse. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At the moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is actually the first evidence of the Trinity in the New Testament that we see at the baptism of Jesus. Um, we see this, this dove alighting on him that, you know, we've, we've talked about even at the beginning of the year in Genesis 1 where it talks about the spirit of God brooding or hovering over the waters. We see that recreated in this story. So already it tells us Jesus is, the fancy term is recapitulating the whole story of scripture up to this point, inhabiting those deepest truths. And then we see God speak and when God speaks, there's this creative act in that. And so we have God the Father speaking truth, the Spirit of God hovering over the water, and then Jesus as the receiver, the Word of God receiving that truth into the deepest part of who he is. And I think that th what is fascinating to me about this story is, like I said, Jesus hasn't done anything yet. Okay, many of us know that the acts of Jesus and the words of Jesus, that's what we hold up when we talk about Jesus. We talk about the way he preached the kingdom. We talk about the, the miracles or um, the way he spoke truth to power or whatever it might be. We talk about um, the revolution of the kingdom. We talk about the political upheaval. But at this point, Jesus hasn't done any of that. But what we find at the end of, the, of this little story is that God speaks this most profound truth over him. This is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. And I think what Matthew's trying to do by telling us this story first is to show us that Jesus knew who he was from the beginning. And that began to shape the work that he knew God had called him to do. Because no matter the situation in his life, Jesus was steadfast because he knew who he was and to whom he belonged. And for us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, we believe he is the best picture of what God is really like. But we also believe that Jesus came to show us what it means to be a truly human being. What does it mean to tr be truly human? And we talk about it a lot of different ways in the Christian household. We talk about being image bearers, that we bear the image of God within us, like the, the DNA of God is in our DNA. We talk about being children of God and what that means, that children become like their parents. But my favorite way of always talking about this um, is that we are the beloved of God, that that is the core truth of what it means to be a human being, to be the beloved of God. And I think that Jesus probably needed this affirmation before he went off and did anything. That before he preaches a sermon or before he stands up uh, to Caesar and to Pontius Pilate and to the, the religious leaders of the day, he needed to be reminded by his father, this is my son whom I love and I'm already well pleased with you. 
You haven't done anything. My love is not conditional. It is not performance-based. There's no, uh, you know, kind of uh, SAT in the sky that Jesus had to pass before he was acceptable to God, even though many of us grew up with that image. He's saying, I already love you, and I'm already well-pleased with you. And the radical nature of that for us is that if we are in Christ, what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. That at the beginning, God looks at you and says, this is my son, this is my daughter. In you, I am already well-pleased. You don't need to do anything to earn my love. And I, I, I wonder how often we get misaligned because we forget this most fundamental truth of our religion, that this is the deepest, most profound thing that we are to receive in our lives because it shapes everything else that Jesus does. Now, the radical nature of this, because so many of us, we have this identity crisis day by day and sometimes even moment to moment, is we think, I need to be able to pull away. I need to be able to preserve that identity that I have from God of being his beloved. But gosh darn it, life keeps getting in the way. All these hard things keep happening that are causing me to forget who I really am. But this is also what we see in the story of Jesus. Many of you will know that immediately after Jesus' baptism, where does he go? He goes into the wilderness, and he's tempted by the Satan. And Satan tempts him with three things. Number one, he says, will God really provide for you? Speak to the stone and turn it into bread. And Jesus' response is to say, God does not, or man does not live on bread alone, but upon the word of God. The next thing he says is, well, you know, is it protection? Like, throw yourself off this tower, and the angels of God will come in, and they will, and you can see, like, Satan's already kind of challenging him on his identity. He's like, if you truly are the son of God, if that's really who you are, if God really loves you, you could throw yourself off this cliff, and these angels would swoop in, and they'd save you. But Jesus says, no, I'm not going to test God. I don't feel the need to test God to see if his love for me is really true. Um, and then the third thing is that uh, the Satan offers him political power. He says, well, if you really are the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, like I, I have dominion over all uh, power and authority structures of man, and I will give all of it to you if you would just bow down to me. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way that the kingdom's going to come. And we even talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about faith and politics, that as Christians, if we maybe paid a little bit more attention to that story, we wouldn't sell out our identity in Christ for political power. We wouldn't fall into that satanic accusation to say, ah, yes, like let's shortcut our way to bringing about the kingdom through using earthly governments to kind of try to establish this thing called the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is tempted immediately after he is affirmed. And I think the challenge to you and I is to recognize that your identity in Christ will only become true. You will only learn how to, like, uh, to inhabit who you really are in Christ when you are tempted, when you enter out into the real world and you hear those satanic accusations. Well, will God really provide for you? Will God actually protect you and guide you? And will God really, truly give you power? And all through his life, Jesus faced immeasurable pain and suffering. Within his own life, the persecution that he faced, but bearing witness to the pain and the suffering of the people that he was ministering to. But I think it's because at the very beginning, Jesus was reminded of who he really is, that his 
God's love for him, the way that God sees him, is not conditional upon how well he shows up for other people. It actually gave him a tremendous amount of freedom to love deeply and compassionately and to do these amazing things. And so the most profound way that we can approach identity is seeing it as a gift to be received, not a status to be earned or maintained. A lot of times that's what we think of when we think of identity, that it's something that I have to achieve, that I have to perform for, that I'm always being graded. How many of you have like an ongoing tally in the back of your mind if you're like you're grading yourself or you think like the, that everybody else around you is grading you? Are you handsome enough? Are you smart enough? Are you doing enough? Are you achieving enough? Are you, you know, whatever it might be, whatever that metric system that you have, you're always grading yourself. And that is such a tricky way to try to identify ourselves because it's constantly changing. I think we're in a profound identity crisis, particularly in the West. The East has its own problems. I'm not from the East, so I don't have much to say about that. But I am from like kind of the West of the world. And we have this real identity crisis happening within our culture right now, where a lot of the narratives, like the stories that have guided us and have unified us, have brought us together and kind of given us something of a trajectory, um, have faded away. A lot of times because they didn't really serve us, um, but sometimes that they've just kind of decreased and talking about like the story of God and, and, and this sort of thing that can kind of hold us together. And the problem is that whenever that core narrative is ripped from us in the West, all these other narratives seek to take the place to tell us who we are. Um, and the problem with these identities that we're given within, within the West, within our country, within the United States, is that number one, they're rather transparent, um, meaning that they're not, they're not solid, okay? Um, they don't, they're not big enough and they're not strong enough to really uh, hold up against the trials and the temptations of the accuser. Um, but they're also transient. They're always shifting. But it doesn't matter how well we did on this particular test or how well we showed up in this place in our life. There's always one more thing that we have to do. And so our identities, we're always in crisis because we're always trying to perform, we're trying to achieve, we're trying to maintain, uh, we're trying to improve, whatever it might be, and those things are constantly changing. The goal line keeps moving farther and farther away from us, and so we're, we're in this crisis because we don't know who we are. The spiritual writer Henry Nouwen said essentially that these three lies about identity that we suffer with in the West. Number one, um, I am what I have, okay? Now, that might be your material goods. And again, this is kind of the consumer mindset in our, in our culture. Well, you're not okay the way you are now, but if you had this toothpaste, then you'd be happy, right? Or if you drove that car, or when you get a house, or, you know, it might be those material goods, but it may also be um, a particular uh, promotion at your work. Like, when I reach this level in my work, then I'm going to be happy and whole and fulfilled. Or maybe it's a skill set. Like, we uh, identify ourselves based on how smart we think we are, or how compassionate we are, or how clever we are. So that I am what I have becomes this huge crisis of identity. Number two, I am what I do. I'm what I put out into the world, which the problem becomes there. If I'm not doing stuff, I don't know who I am. And that's for, for many of us, we consider like what we do based on our, that's how we earn love is based on doing stuff for people. 
And so if I'm not doing enough stuff, then people won't love me. Um, or it's based on achievement. If I'm not changing the world every single moment of every single day, like I'm not doing good enough, so I'm not good enough. Um, there's all sorts of ways that we hold that I am what I do. And then the third is I am what others say about me. That we kind of hitch our identity to the people in our lives. And that might be the people that we love. We want people to love us, and so we perform, or we try to gain love, or we're trying to uh, subtly manipulate love out of people. Or it might be our enemies, um, that we allow the people that don't like us to define who we are. And so we're so paranoid that other people are talking about us that we attach our identity to them. And you, again, even when you kind of think about that through the lens of Jesus, Jesus was not phased by what he had or didn't have. He wasn't phased by what he does or what he doesn't do. And Jesus was never phased by what other people say about him. And so now one identifies these kind of three core lies in the West that tell us these false things about our identity because it's always shifting and it's always transient and transparent. Another thing that we often get stuck with is that our personality and our identity are the same thing. And this is something that I, uh, many of you know, have been studying and teaching for years. Um, your personality is basically um, the unique way in which you think, act, and feel. That's what your personality is. And your personality was developed at a very early age for you to deal with the basic trauma of being born. Being born is a traumatic event. I don't necessarily recommend it. Um, <laughs> And you had to figure out, how do I live in this world? How do I get love? The love that I completely, when I was in vitro, I, I had everything I needed provided for me. And all of a sudden, I'm in this big, dark, cold world, and I don't know how to get what I need. And so you developed a personality in those early years, about two to five years old, to get love. And the problem is that our personalities will take us pretty far, okay? For some of us, love is affection. For some of us, love is empowerment. For some of us, love is security, whatever it might be. And those techniques that you developed at an early age, they got you pretty far, but they don't get you far enough. And you begin to recognize that your personality has limits, and I love that the, uh, the Episcopal priest and Enneagram teacher, Ian Morgan Crone, says that your personality is the story that you tell yourself that runs contrary to the story of grace. Okay, so your personality is the story that you tell yourself that runs contrary to the story of grace. And what does that mean? It means, well, if I just tried a little bit harder if I was just a little bit more winning, if I dressed a different way or spoke a different way, or if I made myself more vulnerable, or if I made better posts on social media, or whatever it is, that I'm going to do these things subtly in order to get the love that I so desperately crave from the world, and it runs us contrary to grace, that grace is God's empowering hand upon us to, to, to give us that sense of belovedness that grounds us and roots us in the kingdom. And when we give ourselves over to our personalities, when we don't recognize our blind spots or how we compulsively seek love, we begin to believe that our personalities are who we really are. And the problem is that you cannot sustain loving connection solely out of your personality. You can't do it. When you were a kid, we all humored you because you were just a kid. But then you kept doing the same things you did as a kid when you were an adult, and we all got kind of tired of it. That's what happens. 
So we enter into our 20s and we have this identity crisis. We're like, this has been working for 20 years so far. And you're like, yeah, but now you're in the real world. And unfortunately, that get, that's where it gets replaced with these ideas of this performance-based mentality. But we can't sustain this loving connection because we become dependent, we become codependent on people. We're constantly trying to gobble up experiences of love through our personality. Or just as sadly, we pull away and we retreat and we hide ourselves from other people in our personalities. And we just kind of shut off this deep desire we have to be loved. Now, the Apostle Paul speaks about this in a rather profound way in Galatians chapter 3. Um, where he's speaking about identity. What's happening, the problem, crisis in this church is that they're believing these lies of other, other folks that are coming through and saying, yeah, Paul gave you a pretty decent view of the gospel, but really you have to get circumcised and you have to follow all these rules. Basically, you need to become Jewish in order to be accepted by God. So there's this performance-based mentality. And if many of you know, um, the book of Galatians, it's like Paul just goes ham on them. He's like so, like all the rest of his letters, he's like, gosh darn it, I love you guys. You're so sweet. Okay, here's the problems that I'm hearing about going on. And he writes a letter. In this one, he's just like, I think this one begins, he goes, who has bewitched you? And he's like, you want to get circumcised? Why don't you go the whole way and just cut the whole thing off? And you're like, wow, inappropriate, Paul. But it's, uh, it's divine, you know? This is divinely inspired scripture. Go ahead and chop it all off. Um, so Paul is kind of, he's really challenging them on, like, who do you think you are? I also wanted to play a clip from The Office today, like Toby's exit uh, interview, with, you know, and he goes, I've got a question for you. Who do you think you are? Follow, follow question, what gives you the right? So funny. But Paul is really challenging them. He's like, you're entering into this performance-based thing again, and you don't recognize that's the very thing that we've been delivered from because it's insufficient to define us. And so in Galatians, beginning the 23rd verse, this is where he's challenging um, this community. He says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith, and one of the very cool things about this, the translation should actually be uh, justified by Christ's faithfulness. Okay? So faith doesn't become one more performance that I have to put on in order to receive an identity. It's through the faithfulness of Jesus that I am able to receive his identity in Christ. So now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So... In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, the faithfulness of the Messiah. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what's another way in the West that we try to identify ourselves? We take these external markers, these qualities about someone, and we reduce them to that essence. And what does that look like? It means that we put our identity in our ethnicity, we put it in our gender, we put it in our sexuality, we put it in our political movement. So we talk about sexual identity, we talk about gender identity, we talk about identity politics, right? These are some common things that we hear in our culture today. And I think the radical theological move that Paul is saying in this passage in particular, and he echoes it elsewhere, is those things that you think are core to who you are 
are getting in the way of you understanding that your true identity is to be in Christ, that your true identity is to be the beloved of God. Now, what is he not doing? He's not saying these things don't exist. He's not saying there's no such thing as gender, there's no such thing as socioeconomic status, there's no such thing as ethnicity. He's not saying that. Because obviously, if you know the work of Paul, he is very particular in how he addresses uh, the divisions between uh, Jews and Gentiles, the divisions between men and women, or whatever it might be. It's, this is not an erasure. This is, you know, like in the 90s when we talked about like, being colorblind. Like, that's, that's ignorant. That's not what we're talking about. But he's saying, when you are in Christ, when you have been baptized into Christ, these things are not the core of your identity, your sexuality, your gender, your ethnicity. Because what happens oftentimes, again, in the West because of this identity crisis, is we develop a concept like race. And for people who are generally in the majority, we don't have a racial identity because we don't need one. And what we usually do is the minority are completely defined by their race. And that definition actually dehumanizes them. Okay? We see this in sexuality and gender, too. If you are in power, if you're in a majority, you don't have to worry about your sexual identity. You don't have to worry about your gender identity. That's not what defines you. But it sure as heck does define whomever's in the minority. And the problem becomes when, when, when groups that are being oppressed because we're insisting, no, this is the core of who you are, and this is the thing that defines you, when they begin to believe that. And whatever happens when you're in an oppressed minority and you're being defined by your sexuality, your gender, your race, ethnicity, your socioeconomic status or whatever, is that you begin to reduce yourself to that inherent identity and then you need the big scary other. So it's like everybody's scared of everybody else when we use these things as identity. It doesn't actually solve the problem of race. And it doesn't actually solve the problem of misogyny and sexism or whatever it might be. And what I find oftentimes, you know, and again, this is not a phenomenon of left and right. It's not really a phenomenon of majority-minority because we see this at all points where we identify somebody by one of those cultural markers and we infantilize them to say, you are, like, you're incapable of being a whole and complete person. No, 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 I'm going to insist that this is who you are. This is kind of how white fragility works. Um, this is who you are. And we're going to do something about it. We're going to fix it for you because you can't do it yourself. And we've reduced people and we've robbed them of this far richer identity that we have as children of God because we've made it about this one particular aspect of who they are. And we can't see past it. I can't see past the fact that my friend is gay. I can't see past the fact that this person is black or whatever it might be. And we've robbed people of the profundity of what Paul is saying here. And we've committed the same crime as the Galatians. We've turned everything into these, device, these dividing walls of hostilities he talks about elsewhere when we make it about identity. And we insist, no, 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 you must be like this. There was a guy who was part of our community several years ago, and I loved talking to him because older guy in his 50s. And uh, I, I'm going to have to stop saying that pretty soon because soon I will be in my 50s. But older than me, wonderful fellow. Uh, and he volunteered at the Zebra Coalition, which is just over there at Mills 50. And there, uh, you know, they kind of reach out to LGBT homeless youth. Um, and then he's gay, and he's a Republican. <laughs> and a lot of the kids that he would work with, they're like, no, 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 no. You're not allowed to be a Republican because you're gay. And he's like, no, I believe in small government. And they're like, but no, you can't do that. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, that's how it plays out in reality in our society today. We go, no, you're your identity is based on your sexual attraction. And he's going, no. Like, he's gay. He's married. 
but he doesn't see that as the core of who he is. And so I think majorities tend to demonize people with these kind of identity politics. Um, or we'd say maybe on the right. Like the right would have a tendency to make small and, and oppress people based on these identity markers, but the left would tend to infantilize people um, and turn them into projects that need rescuing instead of seeing them as whole and complete human beings. So that's kind of the problems that we often have here when we make our identity about something other than being a gift that we receive. We receive this gift from God. And it's not about developing it. It's not about performing it. It's not about achieving it. It's about learning how to live into it. Because when we learn how to receive our identity as a gift to be received, it gives us firmer grounding to engage with the world around us with steadfast compassion that steadfast compassion that we see in Jesus. Your belovedness is always going to be uh, tempted by the Satan, by the accuser. Like who you really are in Christ, will, you will always be in that wilderness state to a certain degree where those little lies are going to come into the back of your head and say, yeah, 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 but if, does, is God really going to provide for you? Like, or is it... Is it like maybe what you have, maybe you don't have enough, or maybe you need more, or maybe you need to do more, or maybe you really need to think about what that person says about you and you need to perform for them so that they can give you love. Like those lies are always coming in there. But there's an opportunity, I think, to learn how to live into our belovedness that comes through the temptations of this life. Or talk about like the, the crazy news cycle that feels like we've been in for like 50 billion years. And like these constant things are being thrown at you, one crisis after the next, and this pressure that I need to pay attention, and I need to do, and I need to act, and I need to be on the right side of history, or else I'm going to get left behind, or I'm no good, or whatever it might be. And you're constantly this barrage of stuff that's saying, no, 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 find your identity in this, find your identity in your rage, find your identity in your activity, act, whatever it might be. And we're being, as Paul says, tossed back and forth by the waves of cunning teaching in that. But again, he speaks about this so profoundly. There's another little portion of a different letter in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And this is what he says. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Two phrases here I find especially powerful. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling and shine like stars in the sky. I think what Paul says, when he says work out your salvation, he's saying take the thing that is truest on the deepest part of who you are and work it out from the inside to the outside. 
that who you really are in Christ, that as you receive this gift of belovedness as your true, true, true identity, that your identity is not based in what you have, what you do, what other people say about you, your race, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your sexuality, your gender, whatever it might be, that is not the truest thing about you. As you work that thing out, you're making what's truest on the deepest part of you true on the outside as well. And the way that you think, the way that you feel, and the way that you act become into alignment with that. But our task is to root ourselves in Christ in the face of chaos. Whenever we feel that identity crisis arising within us, to slow down, to come back to the Father, essentially to come back to each of our individual baptisms and say, hold on a second. Hold on. Who do you say that I am? How do you see me? Oh, you don't, it, like how I behave has nothing to do with your love for me? Okay, cool. And then we re-engage. And we begin to live like Jesus lived. That he was so stead- he was so rock solid in every moment of his life in the way that he treated people. It actually enabled him to be completely compassionate. Because it was almost agendalessness. You see, a lot of times the way that we try to love other people or the tr- way we try to do good works is because we're trying to do it so we get love out of it. It's very conditional, right? Whether it's a social justice work or it's working through things with friends. There's some aspect of it where we're seeking to find our identity in that work, and Jesus just did not operate that way. (coughs) And I think what Paul is also saying with this work out your salvation, he's saying you're not looking to attain something later. Like if you are a good little Christian boy or a good little Christian girl, maybe eventually you will be worthy of God's love because a lot of you grew up in that as well. It's not to find something later. It's to realize what you already have now. And the lovely thing about this passage is that he's saying when you are in Christ, you will shine like the stars in the darkness. In this you will be children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And I think that's where it really ties in with this series. And one of the most important things, like for the sake of the world, that wherever we go, our light shines in dark places because we're not easily swayed by the identity crisis that we find in our culture, in our society. But we are so grounded in the love that God has for us and being his beloved that we're actually able to be this compassionate, faithful presence wherever we go. <coughs> Excuse me. So I'm going to invite Paul to come up and give us a little pad. We're going to do a meditation um, that's going to help us to kind of almost peel through the layers of identity. Um, onions have layers, ogres have layers. You and I have layers. Parfaits have layers. So true. But we're gonna, I'm going to lead you through a meditation, and there's going to be a series of uh, phrases that show up here on the screen. And I want you to, I want you to as we're, we're going through them, like just to kind of prayerfully pay attention to where you have a knee-jerk reaction to what you see, because that's oftentimes because it's, it's kind of pricking a little too close to a false identity that you might be holding. 
And then I want you to sit in that, and maybe you, know, you feel free to write notes on your phone or whatever it might be, or you can read, or you can close your eyes if you're just a better listener. But just enter into that with the spirit of, of Jesus and say, okay, that one stings a little bit. Like, where, where specifically am I rooting my identity in one of these transient things more so than I'm rooting my identity in you? And I'm going to give you a little moment to kind of dialogue with the Lord about that. And then um, we're going to kind of pray uh, to reaffirm who we really are in Christ. So I um, encourage you to kind of get in a posture. Um, you know, of meditation, I've said often, you know, our bodies actually lead our hearts and minds if we're all squinched up, like you're kind of closed off to the presence. But if you kind of open up your shoulders, open up your hands, um, you're just in a, a more open and vulnerable posture before the Spirit uh, to allow the Spirit to speak to you. So Holy Spirit, come. Soften our hearts and our minds so in this moment we might be fully transparent before you, unafraid and unashamed. That you search all things, the deepest things of our hearts that you shine a light on things that perhaps are humiliating to us or we're fearful of them being exposed because it's something that we've been holding on to so tightly that we think defines us. But God, we thank you that you are not a God who humiliates us, but you do humble us. And you invite us to walk through those feelings of shame or guilt or fear or whatever it might be. And you teach us how to let go so that we can be fully established as your children in our belovedness. So speak, Lord, for we're listening. I am not what I do, my achievements, or what I offer to the world. I am not what I have, my material goods or my talents. I am not what others say about me, even when it's good things. I am not my relationships, parent, child, boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, coworker. I am not my relationships.
I am not my sexuality, gender, race, nationality, or ethnicity. I am not my taste in culture. I am not my personality. I'm not my energy levels, I'm not how I see the world, and I'm not how I interpret love. I am not my feelings. I am not my thoughts. not my actions. I am the beloved of God in Christ Jesus. the rest of the band to come up. And we're going to stand together and we're going to uh, renew our baptismal vows. And some of you, you were baptized as children. Um, I was, I was baptized as an infant. And I, I know many of you were as well. 
And that was something being, it was, that was a gift that you were receiving. If you were infant baptized, it was a gift that you received before you knew what it was because it has nothing to do with knowing how much you get it, right? Um, how many of you were baptized as infants? A couple of you, great. How many of you were baptized as a, as a child, teenager? How many of you got baptized every summer camp just to make sure it stuck? Nobody wants to admit to that one. Um, but a lot of times, baptism becomes one more performance. You know, it's like, oh, I have enough facts, and I'm voting yes. Like, I did it. I, I achieved this level of Christianness, and now I'm going to mark it. But the, and I think that's really sad, because the profundity of baptism is that it's, one, it's a one-time received gift to say, you are the beloved of Christ, and you don't get that, and that's okay. Like, that's totally fine. Because the Spirit of God is going to lead you to learn how to work out the salvation you received with fear and trembling. You're going to be placed within a body of believers called the church who are going to help you to walk that journey, to live into what is already truest about you. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to, uh, we're going to kind of call in response uh, essentially renew our baptismal vows, whether it was something that was proclaimed over you as an infant or it's something that you took upon yourself later. And it, we begin with these three renunciations that are, this is what we're leaving behind. Uh, it's that unholy trinity of the flesh and the enemy in the world. And then there's going to be three declarations of something that we are taking up or we're taking up again. And then we're going to uh, affirm uh, we're going to confess what we believe as Christians, even when we don't always believe it, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, uh, and come back to the Lord and recommit to his journey. So let us pray. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Savior? Do you put your whole trust in his grace and love? Do you promise to follow and obey him as your Lord? And let us renew our own baptismal covenant. Do you believe in God the Father? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe in God, the Holy Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers? I will, with God's help. Will you persevere in resisting evil, and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? I will, with God's help. Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? I will, with God's help. 
Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? I will with God's help. Will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? I will with God's help. Almighty God, we thank you that by the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, you have overcome sin and brought us to yourself. And that by the sealing of your Holy Spirit, you have bound us to your service. Renew in these, your servants, the covenant you made with them at their baptism. Send them forth in the power of that spirit to perform the service you set before them. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So we're going to step into a time of worship. I'm going to invite um, our elders and some of our leaders to kind of stand on the sides. And if you need a word of blessing, go receive blessing. If you need to confess, like, I have found my identity so ensnared in what I do, in what I have, in what other people say about me, and I need to learn how to let that go, go receive prayer from your brothers and sisters. Allow them to help you to be set free according to the Spirit. Whatever it is that you need through supplication, ask for it and it shall be done unto you. And for those of the rest of us who are in here, to worship, to proclaim these truths, to remind ourselves of who we really are in the light of God's love, that we are his children whom he loves. In him, we are well pleased. Let's worship and let's pray. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon. 